Father, I thank you and I praise you for this time that we have to come before you, Lord, and that we have just a fellowship with one another and just to learn about your word, Lord. As I thought about it, you this morning, Lord, I thought about how um, I was excited to come and talk, but I thought about would I be excited if I was persecuted to come and talk. So, Lord, I thank you for the privilege. And I ask that you would use me like you use Balaam's donkey. Lord, open my mouth and put your words in it, that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. I'm a crier. Y'all know know it. (laughs) I will always cry probably, but that's just me who God has made me. But um, a couple of weeks ago, we were in the kitchen, and uh, Mom was telling me, Faith, me and Dad were talking, and we wanted to know if he would um, speak on the Mother's Day. And Dad didn't really say anything. He kind of sat quietly. And so Mom kept saying, I want you to pray about it. I want you to pray about it. So I started to pray about it. And I asked the Lord, I thought, what would you have me to talk about? If I, if I were to speak, what would you have me to share? And I, I thought, so often we hear Proverbs 31, the, the, the Proverbs 31 woman, or we hear a sermon about um, what a godly characteristic, you know, what godly characteristics are in women. So as I thought about it, I just kind of laid there. And the thought that came to mind, I believe it was the Holy Spirit, uh, was go check out my genealogy. And so I thought, oh, okay. So I opened my Bible right away, and I went to the genealogy in Matthew of Christ. And I thought I had known who was in Christ's genealogy as far as the women who he had listed. And to my surprise, um, I thought for sure Sarah was there. I thought for sure some of the other people were there. But who I saw um, were Tamar, not David's Tamar, not her daughter, but uh, Jacob's daughter-in-law who acted as though she was a prostitute in order to get her father to sleep with her, in order to bear children, which she had a right to. And then I look at Rahab, who was a a prostitute as well. A prostitute for you younger people are people who sell their bodies for sex. That's what they were doing. And then I look there, and Bathsheba was mentioned. But Bathsheba's name was not actually mentioned. It was Uriah the Hittite's wife. But she was still there. And then I looked at Ruth. And I thought, okay, well, I could see Ruth being there because Ruth didn't have any baggage in her, you know, any dirt in her bags or whatever. And then I look at Mary, and I thought, okay, I could see Mary being there. But then I begin to question the Lord, and I ask him, why would you put three prostitutes and two very different women in your genealogy? Why would you do that? Because most people like us, we want to hide our dirt. We don't want to say that we're connected to people who are of less value or who have kind of shady characteristics. So my question to the Lord was, why out of those two people would you place two prostitutes, one adulteress, and then two people that seem to be pretty good? And, of course, that caused me to wrestle with the Lord a little bit, and it caused me to really self-examine myself. If he is my example, and if he was bold enough to do that, and obviously there's no shame in him putting them there, I shouldn't be judgmental towards some of my family members that I feel are less 
than me or very shady in their character. So that challenged me there. But in the end, I came up with the conclusion, his thoughts are not my thoughts. His ways are not my ways. His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. So he placed them in there for a very specific, intentional purpose and a reason. So three things that I know about the Lord is no, number one is that he is perfect. Psalms 1830 and 2 Samuel 2231 says, for his way is perfect and the word of the Lord is flawless and he is a shield for those who take refuge in him. So automatically it comes to me and I go, okay, this wasn't a mistake. Although you only listed five women in your genealogy, it wasn't a mistake. Your word is perfect, so they're there for a reason. They're there for a purpose. And then the second thought that came to mind is he says all his scripture in Timothy is God-breathed. And it's used to teach, it's used to rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness so that we can be equipped. So there's something in these women's lives that you have placed in there in your genealogy that you want me to focus in on and pay attention to. And that is, there's a lesson that's going to teach me, rebuke me, correct me, and train me in righteousness in some way, shape, or form. And then the third thought that came to my mind is his word is active, as it says in Hebrews. It's powerful, and it's active, and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. So that means there is something in those five ladies' lives that is going to expose sin in my life. It's going to penetrate my heart if I will take the time to study, to dive in, and to learn about these women. So initially, I thought that I was going to go ahead and kind of study each of these women and then do a comparison um, about their lives. And I started on Tamar. I didn't know a lot about Tamar. And I started on her life, and I thought, okay, Lord. And so I got to Ruth, and I got stuck on Ruth. Or not Ruth, but Rahab. So for two weeks, I have been camped out in Joshua studying Rahab. And I see Rahab very differently. I've always felt like God, she's mentioned in the scripture four times. In Joshua chapters 2 and chapter 6, that tells her story. She's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. It declares her as one of the faithful believers. And in James 2, 23 through 25, she's mentioned as a prostitute who is considered to be righteous. Now, Dr. Evans' book I'm reading, it's called... Um, God's unlikely paths to success and how he uses less than perfect people. He mentioned something in there, and Rahab happened to be in there. He mentioned that every time, just about, not all the time, but every time that Rahab is mentioned, she's mentioned along with her occupation and her title, which isn't a, which isn't a good occupation or title. And so we see her over and over mentioned as Rahab the harlot, Rahab the prostitute, or Rahab. But he brings out a very critical point. It says it's interesting that God constantly points out her occupation and her sin. So he wants us to focus on that. He's saying, pay attention to that. Focus to that. There's some relevancy there. Because he doesn't do other people like that. He doesn't say Moses, the murderer. He doesn't say Abraham, the liar. He doesn't say Noah, the drunkard. He doesn't say David, the adulteress. But he very clearly speaks with her, Rahab, the prostitute, over and over and over. So that means, I believe, that there's something that we really need to pay attention to in Rahab's life. So I want us to turn to Joshua 2, and we're going to read 1 through 24. But before we do that, 
I think we need to review the history of what's going on in that day and age so that we can see Rahab's story in the proper context. Forty years earlier, the Egyptians had been in, not the Egyptians, but the, the Israelites had been in Egypt. And they had been there for 40 years, and God brings along Moses to deliver them. And they are headed to the promised land. God has promised that he will provide the land for them. All they needed to do was obey God, follow God, and go into the land. God, or Moses sends 12 spies into this land of Cana. And when the 12 spies come back, they give a report. 10 out of the 12 men had heard God say he was going to give them the land, knew what was going to happen, but for some reason when they came back, they saw the fruit of the land, they saw the people of the land, but when they came back, they decided, you know what, we're going to forget about what God promised, and we're going to use our logic. Because you know what, it doesn't seem like you know, we're going to be able to take them. And so they begin to discourage the people throughout Israel. And there are two out of the ten men that say, no, God has promised to deliver us. God has promised to send us into the land. We can go. I believe those two men knew some basic principles and some basic truths about the Lord. And I believe that that's why they stood out. These two men believed God and they had a heart for him. And we find that in Deuteronomy 136. I'm sorry, 1 uh, verse 36. It tells us that. I also believe they knew God. They believed God, and they had actually experienced God. They had seen God work. They had been delivered. They had seen him open the Red Sea. They had seen him provide food for them. They had seen the plagues of Egypt. They had seen the Passover. They had seen all of, all of that stuff, and it was still very fresh in their mind. I don't know why the other men didn't recall that, or I don't know why they didn't believe that God could give them the land of Cana, but for some reason they didn't. I personally believe Caleb and Joshua understood three good concepts about the Lord. I think that they understood exactly what Proverbs 6, 5 through 6 says, that if I trust in the Lord with all my heart, and that if I don't lean to my own understanding, and if I acknowledge him in all my ways, he will make my path, uh, he will make my path uh, clear, and he will direct it. I also believe they believe Deuteronomy 1.30. The Lord will go, he will go before us. And he will fight for us just as he did in Egypt. And I believe they knew of the concept of Romans 8.31, which says, if God is for us, who can be against us? I think they understood those concepts. And I think because of that, they were compelled to go and be obedient to God. But unfortunately, the other ten spies who discouraged Israel caused trouble for them. Those ten spies were struck dead. And then, of course... Uh, Moses, the Lord really wanted to strike the whole entire nation dead. But Moses begins to beg, and he, he asks God, don't do that. He said, what will it look like to all of the other nations if you strike us dead after you've delivered us? How is that going to look for, for you, Lord? And so God relents, but there's still consequences for the people of Israel. God says that they will wander in the desert for 40 years, and everyone who is over the age of 20 will um, not see the promised land. They will die in the desert. God says that their children will be shepherds for 40 years and that he said they would know what it would be like for his hand to be against them. So there are big consequences that God delivers 
for the disobedience of those children. But what, what is interesting to me, the very next day after God delivers the consequences, the children of Israel come and they say, okay, we're ready to do it now. We're ready to obey now. And God says, no. He said, you can't do it. He said, because I'm not going to be with you. If you go, I will not be with you. But now they're eager to obey once they've gotten the consequences. So they head off and they decide they're going to obey, even though God's told them not to. So there they go disobeying again. And God allows the other nation to beat them all the way back down to their campgrounds. And so they decide, okay, we can't win. We're going to the desert. So they're in the desert for 40 years. In Deuteronomy 2, though, during that 40-year period, we see that God still loves Israel. We see that God still provides for them. He provides the manna. He says the clothes were never damaged. They were never worn. He took care of his children while he was there. During those 40 years, Moses dies, and Joshua then takes over as leader. God reveals now to Joshua that it's time to go into the land and to take Cana and and the, the surrounding lands. Now, the boundaries went from the Red Sea all the way over to the Mediterranean Sea. Some of the scholars say it would be about the size of New Jersey that they were going to go in and take over, about that size. So the story begins, Rahab's story begins there, but let's take a look. We're going to read from, second, from Joshua 2, 1 through 7. It says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim, Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent his message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman who had taken the two men and hidden them, she said, yes, the men came to me. But I didn't know where they had come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax. She had laid out on her roof. And so the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the roads that led to the fords of the Jordan. And soon, and as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate shut. Now, it's interesting to me that the two spies, it's interesting to me, period, that they sent spies again. After the first incident, I I probably would have been like, no, we don't need no spies to go. Because they came back and they discouraged uh, the Israelites. But we see them sending two spies again. And it's interesting to me that they, they asked the two spies to really look at Jericho. And I think it's important to understand the city of Jericho and the culture of Jericho. The city of Jericho would have been about 10 acres of land. But Jericho was a major city at that time. It was a trading post. They would have had military. They would have had security. Their walls would have been fortified. And Jericho would have been one of those main cities. If Jericho was conquered, all the other cities around Jericho would have been very, very nervous because it was one of those places, if you can conquer them, oh, you're going to definitely just conquer us as well. But he sends the spies in, and the spies immediately were told they enter into the house of a prostitute. So my question to God is, why the house of a prostitute? Why would they go into the city, holy men of Israel, 
and enter into a house of a prostitute. There you have to go back, I believe, and look at the history of the culture of Jericho and the time of that day. One of the things that we know in Genesis 15, 18, God said that there would be a point in the time, he tells Abraham, that the children of Israel would go back into the land of Cana. And when they would go back into the land of Cana, the land of Cana, it said that their sins would have reached the full maximum component, which tells us that the city of Jericho is a very immoral place, is a very sin-sick place, and has a lot of dirt going on. So they're getting ready to, we know it's that time because the children of Israel are getting ready to go back. Now, when you look at Jericho, prostitution was normal in that culture. There were two kinds of prostitutes. You would have had your shrine prostitute. She would have had a little bit of, she would have had more respect than your bread and breakfast brothel prostitute, which was Rahab. Rahab had the innkeeping prostitute site, and it was a business for her. The shrine prostitute would have been someone of high standard. The people would have still looked at her as though she was, but still and yet there would have been a respect because she was servicing their gods. So we know that Rahab was the bread and breakfast brothel prostitute because she was on the wall of the city, it states, and it would have been very normal for you to spot her house because she would have had a red cord that hung on the front part of her door. And because she's on the wall, she has a lot of people who are constantly coming in and out, so she's, she has a perfect location. So we look at her, and, and as I look at that, I thought, wow, Lord, well, I guess that does make sense that they could have easily spotted her and thought she was in a hotel or whatever. You know, they know the red cord. Yes, she's a prostitute. But then also, what easier way for me to be, you know, not conspicuous? But then I also thought to myself, there was probably a lot of information she would have gotten from the brothel because I don't think it's a very moral place. I think you probably have a lot of dirt going on in there, a lot of interesting conversation. But also, I think you would have had a lot of interesting conversation from the outside of the brothel as people are sitting there looking. Because I know if it was me, I might be checking out Rahab's house every once in a while to make sure my husband wasn't going in there. And I might be checking it out just to see who is going in and out. So, of course, I'm pretty sure she had people who were just nosy and curious. And I believe that's how the king got note, that these two spies had come in and that they were residing in her house. So immediately the king sends the spies over because he wants to make her aware that, hey, you have two spies in there. But what surprises me about Rahab and what really makes me, made me kind of get stuck there in her story is when the king sends the two informants over to talk to her, she, she hides them. She protects them. And my question was, why? Why would you hide two spies who are considered to be your enemies, who are against your nation, and who might have the potential of eliminating your whole entire family? Why would you hide them? Well, let's keep reading. I think we'll find out why she does hide them. We're going to read from verse 8 to 11. It says, Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us 
so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. For when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. I believe Rahab recognized four major truths. Number one, she recognized her country was going to be doomed. And she says that. She says, I know your God has given our land to you. And the second thing, she knows that the people, that God works on behalf of Israel. She recognized that when Israel would go to war with people, they would annihilate people. These shepherds coming, they would annihilate them. And, and it caused, it says, their hearts to melt and to have fear and to lose courage. I also believe uh, that she knew that God, Israel's God, was the one true God, not hers, but that he was the one true God. And I think she knew that because of what she had heard done. But that's the thing that's so amazing to me, is that she had not actually experienced any of those things done to her. She had only heard of what Israel's God had done. She had only heard about the Red Sea. She had only heard about the plagues. She had only heard about those. And then you look at the Israelites who see God, who have the Ark of God with them. And here you have Rahab saying, I've heard, and I, I believe, there's a fear. She had a fear against Israel's God. And because that fear was there of what he might do and who he was, I believe she made the decision to hide those two spies because I think she recognized that God works, this God doesn't. And she acted according to that. This decision uh, to take the spies in was a total act of faith on Rahab's part. Her decision was not based on what she believed to be true, not what she experienced or knew for herself. Her faith in God caused her to act and to do something. And I think that's what James applauds her for in uh, James, where he said she didn't have a dead faith. She had a faith that caused her to act. And I like what Dr. Evans says. He says it's important for Christians to understand that faith is more than a feeling. Faith is a function. It's an action. It does something. And it makes me go, okay, is my faith an action in my life? Do I actually act out what God is telling me to do, what I say I believe, or is my faith merely words? And I think that's a question we all need to self-examine. Do we do what we say and not what we believe? I said that wrong. We do what we believe and not what we say. So is my faith actually showing up in my actions, or am I just verbalizing constantly what I believe with no actions? Well, let's continue to read. Let's keep going from verse 12 to 24. It says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to me, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived was 
in part of the city wall. Now she said to them, go to the hill so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourself there three days until they return and then go on your way. The men said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let, through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into the house, if anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on, your own he on his own head. We will not be responsible. And as for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if, he, if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she, went, so she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord to the window. When they left... They went into the hills and stayed three days, stayed there for three days, until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our land. All the people are melting in fear. Now, the part that I like about this part is obviously we see that uh, Rahab is a very savvy businesswoman because she quickly begins to negotiate. And she, she begins to ask them for kindness. But it, as I read in Dr. Evans' book, one of the points that he uh, pointed out, I often thought when I read this, she was just saying, be kind to me. Um, help me out. But actually, the word that she was using, kindness, he said in the Hebrew... The word is called chest. And chest is often used when covenants are being made. And so chest means be loyal to me, be faithful to me. So Rahab was not just simply saying to them, I want you to be kind to me, be nice to me. Rahab was saying, I want you to be loyal and faithful to me. And I want a covenant agreement based on your loyalty and faithfulness into their God, into, their, into Israel's God. I want you to be loyal and faithful to me, and I want you to save my family. But I think Rahab was not only making the covenant with them, she was making the covenant with God. And I believe that her faith was based on this unseen God that she had not experienced, but that she was trusting and putting her hope that he was going to do something. Yes, she verbalized it to the spies, but as we'll see later on, it wasn't up to the spies to save Rahab. They couldn't have saved her in the way in which things happen. But I believe that she was making the covenant, asking God through them to save her. So they strike the deal, and they, they give her some conditions. They say to her that she has to put that red cord on the window, um, and she allows the spies to go out that same window. And, and I believe she immediately hung that red cord on there. And I'm assuming that she would have immediately went and got her family because the condition was that she bring her family in, that she hang the red cord on the window, and then she wait. And what's interesting to me is that Rahab didn't have any other information. She didn't know if it was going to be tomorrow. She didn't know if it was going to be seven days from now. All she was instructed to do was hang the cord in the window, bring her family in, keep them safe, and wait. What's interesting to me as well is I wonder if Rahab really wanted to bring her family over to her place. 
I wonder what Rahab's family thought about Rahab. And I wonder during that time she was waiting how it felt to be amongst all those family members in her brothel. I can only imagine the conversation she might have heard in that brothel. But I think of us as humans and how we are when we feel like someone is beneath us. I don't know if her family disclaimed her. I don't know if there was tension between the sisters. But to have a heart that she cared enough to even want them saved and she desired to bring them into her home. Like I said, not knowing if it was going to be one, two, three days, which it almost ends up being two weeks. But she brings them into her home because she desires for them to be saved as well. It shows us that Rahab was not self-centered, but that she was concerned. Now, after the spies left Rahab's house, the following things take place. The spies return to uh, Joshua to give the report. Joshua then tells the people to consecrate themselves, which is about a day or two process because they need to set themselves apart. In other words, we're going to make ourselves holy before we head into the land. And then the third thing, God does a miraculous miracle again. And I, I love this about God. I love the fact that you can think you know something. Cana, the Canaanites and the Jericho people, the people that were there, they're already fearful about God. Here's Israel. Here's the Jordan River. Here's Cana and Jericho. And I love how God shows out. He comes and he says, okay, I know they're fearful. Joshua gave the report. But he says, watch this. He said, you're going to get ready to head over, but you got to cross the Red Sea. So he tells the priest, he says, the priests are to go in first. They are to carry the ark and they are to go in and they are to put their feet into the river. And once they put their feet into the river, that river will do just like the Red Sea did before. It will divide for them to go across. What do you think the other nations thought? They're already trembling. They're already fearful. And all of a sudden, once again, they see this river split into half. Whether or not they see it, whether or not they hear it, they know what happened because Israel has moved from here. They've came across the Jordan River, and now they're at the door of Jericho or Cana. Would that not cause you to feel utterly helpless? But I feel like God is saying, let's go. We're moving in. I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. And he moves in. And it says the people's hearts begin to faint and they begin to fear again. So they, they make it over to the other side. Then God tells Joshua to circumcise all the men. And not only were they to be circumcised, they had to take time to allow the circumcision to heal. So you're talking, they were three days when they left Rahab's house. They were three days out in the field. They came back. I give them another day to tell Joshua. They got to consecrate themselves. That's about another two days. And then they crossed the uh, Jordan River. I don't know, maybe a day or so. That's eight days or so. And then all of a sudden, they have to be circumcised. And circumcision takes a while to heal. Just like any cut, it takes a while to heal. I don't know if we're at two weeks or not, but I wonder what Rahab's thinking in her house with all her family members. And so they're in the process of being circumcised. And then after the circumcision is done and they heal, then they celebrate Passover, which is another seven days. So there was a good time frame that was in between the time when Rahab saw the spies 
until the spies actually, until Israel actually came in and began to uh, be obedient and walk around the city. But like I said, I wonder what God was doing in Rahab's life. I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But I know from my fleshly standpoint, it would have been easy for doubt to set in. It would have been easy to think, did I make the right decision? Just throwing it out there. But let's keep going. So finally, we're going to run over to chapter 6. They've healed from the circumcision, and it's time for them to head into Jericho. And I like how God never told them when they first ventured out, he never told them how Jericho would be delivered into his hands. He just told them to go. So they had to be obedient, and they had to go. And now they're at the door of Jericho. And it says in verse 1, Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along, I'm sorry, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry the trumpets of rams, horns, in the front of the ark. And on the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpet. When you hear them, sound a long blast on the trumpets. Have all the people give a loud shout, and then the wall of the city will collapse, and the people will go up, every man straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant for the Lord. And the seven priests carried trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the people, Advance, march around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. So they begin this process. And once again, I reflect back on what was Rahab thinking? Because they begin this process of walking around the city. They're to, they're to be silent. The horns are blow, blowing. But on the first day, they're walking around. And I wonder what Rahab thought. I wonder if she thought, okay, today's the day. I see them going. Things are about to happen. But then day two comes. Day three comes. Day four comes. I wonder what she's really thinking day five. Because I know if it was me, I'd be going, what's going on? This isn't right. There has to be more than this. Day six comes and day seven comes. And on day seven, let's read here, it is uh, verse 15. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and they marched around the city seven times in the same manner. Except that on that day, this they circled the city seven times. The seventh time, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into the treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the walls collapsed. So every man charged straight in and took the city. They devoted the city of the Lord and destroyed it with the work with the sword and every living thing in it. 
men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkey. The spies made the agreement with Rahab. But at the time that they made the agreement with Rahab, they didn't have the war plan. I don't think they realized that they weren't going to go in and break down the doors and fight physically with the people to conquer uh, Jericho. So in all due reality, the spies in Israel had nothing to do with the destruction or the fall of Jericho. It was completely God. What amazes me is that they had no ability to keep Rahab at all. All they could do was trust that God would honor their commitment to Rahab. And we see that God does that. Because Joshua then tells them, he says, go to the house of Rahab and bring the family out. Which tells us one very important thing. He didn't say go dig Rahab out the rubble. He said go to her house and go bring her out. Which means when that wall collapsed, Every area collapsed but one area, and that would have been the house of Rahab, which shows us that God is a God who keeps. And Rahab's faith in God, she hadn't experienced him. She didn't really know him. She only heard. But her faith in God allowed him to keep her and allowed him to save her family. I personally like to call, I believe that, Rahab got to experience her own little Passover from God. And I like how Dr. Evan puts it. He says, the red cord identified Rahab and her sinful life. And the spies had Rahab hang her scarlet red cord on the window. This is the same window out of which the spies would escape. When Rahab hung a sign of her sin, which was an acknowledgement of who she was, in a place where she had chosen to demonstrate faith, she received salvation from the Lord. It's the same thing for us. When we choose to acknowledge our sin and place it at the foot of the cross, we receive mercy and we receive grace that we don't deserve. And he passes over us and he saves us. Rahab's cord acknowledged who she was, but her faith allowed God to be gracious and merciful to her. Not only to her, but to her family, which saved them from destruction. Moms, our faith can do the same thing for us. Our faith affects the lives of others. It can either lead them into an encounter with Christ, which will allow them to experience him, or our lack of faith can cause them to be destroyed, like the Israelites who wouldn't go in and take the land, or even like the people of Israel or Jericho, who heard, they heard the same thing that everybody else heard, but they didn't believe, and they trusted in their fortified walls to save them. God can use our faith as a compelling force, which could drive our kids, our family members to the cross, which could ultimately lead them to salvation. Sometimes I think as moms, we really don't understand the power of our actions through faith. I don't think we understand that if we are simply obedient and we demonstrate it constantly through our lives, our kids are able to see God work over and over and over. 
And that actual visualization for some, it's needed. Some of them need to see the hand of God versus our mouth. And I, and I think that we, we don't get it. I don't think we get how powerful our actions in applying God's truth can be to the life of another person. Well, back to Rahab. What I like about it is when we see that her story, after God pulls her out of that situation out of Jericho, she ends up staying with the Israelite people. Their God becomes her God. Their people become her people. And I like how, in the end, she doesn't just go off, and she doesn't just kind of live by herself. God has a great purpose, and he has a great plan for Rahab. And what he does is he, she gets married, and she doesn't get married to any little old Joe. She gets married to Salmon. And Salmon, we see in Corinthians, he is the father of Bethlehem, which will be the birthplace where Christ will come. And so she then becomes the wife to a person who is over the city of Bethlehem. He puts her, he esteems her in a very high place. And then after that, we see that she gives birth to a son named Boaz. And Boaz marries uh, Ruth. And Ruth uh, has Obed. And Obed has Jesse, who is ultimately the father of King David. And that's how Rahab is placed into the genealogy of Jesus. Well, God would ultimately place her in his line to show people that we have messed up lives. And some of us come from very, we all have junk in our trunk. We try to act like we don't. We try to act like we're doing everything okay. And we put on a good facade. But God knows the dirt's in our lives. And we are all messed up. And I think he uses her and I think he points out the fact that she is a prostitute over and over because that is such a a scummy position. But I think he wants us to recognize that look what he did with her. And look what she chose to do. Look how she feared him. And then look how she allowed that fear of him not only to compel her to hear, but to do. She began to serve him and do because of what she knew. I love the fact when we submit our lives and our identity to Christ, he begins to write a new script for our life. No longer is it our script, but it becomes his script. And his script is far better than our script could ever be. But the key to allowing him to write a very good script is your obedience to him. Rahab acted on what she knew to be true. And that's why I believe God points her out. She put her faith into action and allowed God to deliver her, which ultimately gives her a testimony for the whole world to see. My prayer for us is that we will have a faith like Rahab. That we will actually not have to be hit upside the head like the Israelites, but that we will hear his word. We will obey his word. We will act upon his word, apply it for others to see. And in doing that, you will never know the people that you will influence for the kingdom and the people that will come to the cross because of the fact you have applied your faith. May our faith not be just words, but may it be actions. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your truth. And I thank you for Rahab, Lord. I thank you for how you used her, Father. 
And I thank you for how we see that she, she heard. She didn't really know, but she was willing to step out on faith. And so often, Lord, in this world, we, we reason things, we rationalize things, and we can actually see them in your word. We know what to do, but if it logically doesn't make sense to us, Lord, we don't want to step out on faith. Help us, Lord, not to be that way. Help us, Lord, to be obedient to the things that we know, not just in our head, Lord, but help us then to apply them through our actions. Because, Father, our lives are like books to, to the lost and dying world. We are your hands, we are your feet, we are your mouth, Lord. But if we don't live in that manner, Lord, people can't see you. So I pray that you would help us, Lord, to live in such a way that we would act out our faith, that we would believe you, Lord, and that we would be obedient to you in all that we do. Thank you for the opportunity. Help us to obey. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. She's always been my trouble child because of all her questions that she asks. And she's always been an explorer. I can get this down. But there's a richness in the questions. Because even with Rahab, God shows us a picture of a mother who protects her family at any cost. And that was Rahab protecting her family. What it does not mention is Rahab's children. It mentions the sisters and brothers, father, mother, but, but it also, when it adds in the words, and her family also, it's her children. The whole process boils down to this. Another picture that God paints for us with Rahab is never about our past. It's always about our what? It's not about our past. And as faith brought out, Rahab's always mentioned as the harlot or the prostitute. But look where God, what he reminds us of, is where he bought her from and where she wound up at. The mother of Boaz. And to step into a whole new life. A woman who has been with many men. To step into a life. Being faithful now to one man. Only a work that God can do. Only a work that God can do. And what he shows us in the life of Rahab. And when you check Hebrews 11.31. Faith. And mothers, let me share something with you. Sometime all you have is what? Faith. 
All of us are not blessed with a good husband. All of us are not blessed with everything that we think we have need of. But what we do have that nobody can take from us is faith. And if you hang on to that faith, as faith said, and believe God and trust him, Rahab's life was not always easy. As she explored the life for a few days with her sisters and her family and what they may have said about her, if you could imagine what Rahab's life would have been like stepping into the camp of the Israelites. At first she's the enemy. Then she's the prostitute. Then she's this and she's that. And she's not one of us. God had to work in her husband's life in order for that man to say, this woman with this reputation would now be my wife. So much to explore. But mothers, Rahab shows one thing. You are a protector of your families. And any man knows one thing about a mother. She will do what? Protect her children. Now, if you want to have a fight, husbands, <laughs> and a mother will jump between a husband and a child so quick. And she's only doing it for one reason, protecting her what? Her children. Mothers, you are a blessing. You are a blessing. And may you continue to be a blessing.